You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Newt Gingrich is a real crass act. While the massacre was still going on in Paris, while these fucking assholes were still slaughtering people in Paris, while hundreds were being held hostage in a concert venue in Paris by assholes with AK-47s, Newt Gingrich tweeted this out. Imagine a theater with 10 or 15 citizens with concealed carry permits. We live in an age when evil men have to be killed by good people. If you've seen the videotape that's online of the beginning of the massacre in that theater as a rock band was playing, it is pitch black and you begin to hear gunshots. Now imagine a theater with 10 or 15 yahoos with concealed weapon permits who at that moment when gunfire is coming from they don't know where, pull out their guns and start blasting away. All that would have accomplished was upping the body count. It would have been a reach around assist for the fucking assholes who are there attempting to kill as many people as possible if 15 armed yahoos with concealed weapon permits began blasting away at that moment. Newt Gingrich tweeted that out at 3.30. Believe it or not, 45 minutes earlier, at the height of the carnage with these fucking ISIS jackasses in Paris slaughtering innocent people basically all over town, terrorizing the entire city with guns – Steve King, conservative dipfuck of Iowa, Iowa, you should be embarrassed and ashamed, sent out an email inviting everyone to enter a contest online to win a rifle signed by gun humpers Mike Huckabee, Bobby Jindal, my old college roommate Rick Santorum, and Ted Cruz at steveking.com slash cruz hyphen Huckabee hyphen Jindal hyphen and hyphen Santorum hyphen gun hyphen giveaway hyphen two, you can find this contest, this giveaway. All you have to do to enter to win Steve King's gun that he wanted to make sure we all knew about while people were being slaughtered by assholes with guns in Paris is enter your first name, last name, email address, city. This was the response by two high-profile quote-unquote leaders on the conservative right in this country as this massacre was unfolding in Paris. What they need in Paris is more people with guns in a dark room where assholes with guns are firing indiscriminately. And hey, who wants a gun? Conservatives, America. They're all ours. Here's the thing, though, about Steve King's gun giveaway, his rifle raffle. I went and looked at the rules, the official rules, and you don't have to give this motherfucker any money. You don't have to make a donation. You just have to fill out the form. Anyone is eligible to enter and win by random drawing Steve King's fucking awful gun signed by four of the worst people in America. You could enter to win at steveking.com slash cruise hyphen, be hyphen, gentle hyphen, and hyphen, centaurum hyphen, gun hyphen, giveaway hyphen two. You can win the gun. You just have to enter your first name, last name, email, address, city, state, and zip code. Now, if you enter, you're going to wind up on mailing lists for right-wing 
nutbags. That's how I found out about this in the first place. I'm, I, years ago, I entered something else or I made a joke donation to somebody else. And so I'm on all these right-wing mailing lists because my email address has been sold and resold and resold and resold. This is how this came to my attention during the attack in Paris, this gun rifle giveaway. And since I'm already on Steve King's mailing list, I went ahead and entered. And I want to encourage as many of you out there who'd like to enter to enter as well. Because I think it would be really nifty if one of us, a libtard, as they like to call us, a gun grabber, as they like to call us, won this awful gun signed by these awful people being offered in this sweepstakes by this awful person. So please join me. Go to steveking.com and enter to win the rifle signed by Ted Cruz, Mike Huckabee, Bobby Jindal, and Rick Santorum. And if one of us wins it, the lefty wins it, then we can melt it down and send the lump of melted, awful fucking former gun Back to Steve King. So please join me in entering. Let's take one gun out of the 300 million in circulation in the United States, which never seem to be where you need them. This argument that conservatives are making in the wake of Paris, if only they had had more guns, this wouldn't have happened. Because here in the United States, where everybody has a fucking gun, we never have mass shootings, do we? When's the last time we had a mass shooting in the United States, besides like 11 minutes ago? And 11 minutes before that, 11 minutes before that. Oh my God, the conservative logic. It burns. It's so stupid. More guns do not make people more safe. If more guns made people safe, we would be the safest people. We have lots of guns and we are not safe. As fucking idiots and guns in this country prove to us again and again and again and again. So join me in freeping this sweepstakes. Not really freeping. Freeping is when you send every, all your followers out to vote in a poll and skew the results. This is monkey wrenching, but I'm going to call it freeping. Join me in freeping Steve King's sweepstakes. Let's win this gun for our side. Let's take this gun out of circulation. Let's melt this gun signed by these awful people down. One more time, and I'm going to rattle off that whole URL again because it, you can't find it if you just go to steveking.com. It's not immediately apparent how to get to the sweepstakes. So one more time, steveking.com slash cruise hyphen Huckabee hyphen Jindal hyphen and hyphen Santorum hyphen gun hyphen giveaway hyphen two. Go there. Enter. Maybe create a brand new email account if you don't want to be spammed for the rest of your life by right-wing assholes. Or if you don't mind being spammed by right-wing – or if you're already, as I am, being spammed constantly by right-wing assholes, just use your own email address. The winner will be notified by email on or about December 11th, 2015. Going to be a random draw. You could win just as easily as one of Steve King's rabid right-wing moronic fans. And now your calls. Hi, Dan. I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller bisexual married woman in the Northeast. The advice about being upfront with fantasy has helped me and my husband build a fulfilling sex life that includes lots of spanking. Here's the issue. We're thinking about getting a puppy soon and we want to train him or her to be okay with the noise of our sex um, because it's healthy and safe. It could sound like my husband is hurting me. Um, I'm pretty vocal and a barking dog during sex would totally kill the mood. We thought about putting the dog outside the room, but what if it's like the mailman 
where he barks and barks and barks, and eventually we stop making noise because we both come, um, and then he learns that barking and barking will lead to us stop making noise. Terry and I have two dogs, and they typically leave the room in disgust if we're doing sex things, whether they're noisy or not. Maybe your dog will be the same, or maybe your dog will rip your husband's throat out the first time you spank him. But here's the thing. If you get the dog and it's interfering with your sex life, there's an advantage to dog ownership over parenting in that you can have the dog, unlike the child, put down. Good luck. Just kidding. I mean, you could have the dog put down basically for any reason, but don't. Don't have the dog put down. Have the husband put down. The hairbrush. I mean, have the husband put down the hairbrush. Uh, hi, Dan. 19-year-old male. Uh, I recently underwent my first heartbreak, and I haven't been able to, pardon me being so forward, but I haven't been able to get an erection for the past four days. Uh, I've been really upset. Uh, my girlfriend of the year just broke up with me, and I don't know how to deal with this, and I'm not sure why it's affecting me sexually so much. Sometimes a sad can be so overwhelming that it impairs erectile functioning, even in a teenager, even in a 19-year-old. You need to take a deep breath and remind yourself as if you need to remind yourself that you just got your heart broken. Sometimes when we get our hearts broken, our junk is temporarily broken as well. So here's what you do. You do what people do when they have their hearts broken. You wallow. You binge on whatever you want to binge on on Netflix. You get out of the house. You go to the gym. You go for a bike ride. You go for a fucking walk. You eat some ice cream. You annoy your friends by pouring your guts out in front of them. And they should indulge you for about four weeks. And then they should stop indulging you. They should tell you to nut up in your case. Get the fuck over it already. Over up. In every case. So do that. Wallow, eat ice cream, get out of the house. Feel your feelings, feel the fuck out of your feelings. And I promise you, in a week or two, your dick will be back begging for the attentions of your right hand or your left hand. I don't want to commit an act of left handed erasure there. Your left hand could be back begging for the attentions of your left hand. Hi, Dan. I am a 26-year-old female living in near a coastal California city. I've been with my boyfriend for five years, and recently he came out to me about being bisexual, being interested or attracted to sexually, like penises. Like, I remember you saying on the show once, like, two different types of gay men, like cockhounds, and then the ones that, like, individually like men. I feel like he is a, a, a cockhound. Like he seems to be sexually attracted to penises. And he has had sex with men before our relationship twice. And always felt very nervous about talking about this with anyone and feels like such a relief to have shared it with me and says that he loves me and wants to spend the rest of his life with me. Like it was a few weeks ago that this happened and he's been proving to love me and we bought a strap on and I, you know, had sex with him, fucked him for the first time, times, and I enjoy it, and it's fun, and um, we were watching, he watched, like, watching gay porn or bi porn or, like, orgy porn, and um, 
It's been totally fun. However, I'm having a hard time with my own personal self, self-worth in our relationship. I'm worried about um, him maybe only having come out like a little bit or so. I don't know. I'm just worried about the future of our relationship and that I don't want to be the stupid one that um, missed the signs of him like then later leaving me. And I think he would be willing to talk too. Like we've been trying to work through this. I'm really trying not to feel that way. He's been reassuring me that that's not the case, but um, I'm having a hard time with it because I think through the years of lying, I developed a lot of anger about sex anyway and um, uh, being appreciated. And um, I want to be appreciated and maybe I'm attracted to other people also and like being sexually appreciated by other men. And I don't really know how to go from here, what to do. And I don't know. Well, congratulations on the awesome sex you've been having with your newly out by boyfriend. That's awesome. New fun adventures. Like let's put some things on the bright side column or in the, you know, in the upside column, like, Hey, you pegged somebody for the first time. That's awesome. How fun was that? It was totally fun. That that I enjoyed. And that probably wouldn't have happened without this disclosure, right? That is true. When you say you're angry about the years of lies, are you talking about the years, the five years you've been together when he didn't inform you that he was bisexual? Yeah, it was the five years that he didn't inform me and that it was like something that he would like do when he was alone. He was like, was turned on by like, putting ads on Craigslist and then like jerking off if people responded and then like not going to see them. Like he assured me that he didn't go to see them. He was one of the many millions of flakes and fakes that people complain about on dating apps and Craigslist and everywhere else to people who hunt for pictures and just want to jack off and fantasize. I guess so. All right. And were his lies to you, to your face, were they lies of omission or commission? Did he look at you and say, honey, I'm straight. I would never touch a dick ever. Um, no, but there was a lot, like there were months and months of my like asking about what it was sexually that like turns him on. Cause like, I've also been happy, I guess due to this, like, mm-hmm. um, I have been feeling undesired in our sexual relationship and wait, wait. really sexually frustrated, due, I due, guess. Due to this, due to the, the, the disclosure or the way he treated you for the first five years? The way he's been treating me for a while. I guess. And how is that? Just bored with you or? Yeah. Or yeah, kind of, or like disinterested. Okay. That can happen in a long-term relationship. You know, the tide can go out and the tide can come back in and that can, that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with a partner being closeted or bi or anything else. Like even in a relationship with two hundred percent heterosexuals, Sometimes mm-hmm. the tide goes out or people get bored and then something comes along to shake it all up and they're suddenly fucking like rabbits again. Um, and, and that thing that comes along to shake it all up and, you know, reconnects to people sexually should be welcomed. Sometimes it's a disclosure that initially is upsetting, like, hey, I'm mm-hmm. bi or, hey, I had an affair. Or, hey, I really thought about having an, having an affair and tiptoed up to that line and pulled back. And sometimes those, you know, what comes out of those conversations or those confrontations or those conflicts is a reignited sex life. And this is one of those aspects of having the affair or, you know, the mini betrayal if it's not an affair that 
uh, it doesn't get the credit it deserves when it improves the relationship. We always hear about the infidelities or the affairs or the lies or the whatevers when they this explode everything. But every once in a while, they make shit better by just tearing two people open again and reconnecting, yeah. them, processing the trauma of it reconnects them. That's true. I very much want that to be the result of this. I guess I'm just having trouble like feeling really insecure that I, that maybe there's like a, a future confession of like, I just love you as a friend and that's possible. Like, thank you for helping me explore this. That's po- and like, I don't know. I, just- I don't want to discount that. There are guys out there who come out as bi who are gay. I was one of them. However, that impression that all Guys who say they're bi are actually gay is not an impression created by bi guys. It's a, an impression created by gay guys who are lying about being bi. Only time will tell <laughs> if your bi guy is lying about being bi. And right. you're in a better position to assess that than I am. And I'm going to ask some horrible questions now. Does he eat your pussy? Does he? Yeah. Yes, but probably not as often as I would like. Earlier in the relationship, was he eating your pussy more often? Yes. All right. So I think, and this is me projecting perhaps my gynophobia onto guys or to, to other gay guys. I think that, you know, enthusiastic pussy eating, particularly early in a relationship, is probably a sign he's not a gay dude. For a lot of closeted okay. gay dudes who can manage to sleep with women, that's kind of a hard limit. It's hard to pretend the woman you're sleeping with is a man <laughs> if your face is in her pussy. <laughs> So you should take some assurance, some reassurance from from that fact. You know, the other stuff, like he might leave you for someone else. That's true. He might. He might do that if he was straight, too. You might leave him for someone else. Yeah, that's true. But you, you can't. I, mean, I know these are all. Yeah, you can't wall that off. The thing I think is interesting about the end of your call and the way I called you back is what you toss out there sort of blithely at the end is you might like to be in a relationship long-term committed that allows you to get with other guys every once in a while. Yeah. I would like to add also that like, I'm sort of bisexual. Like I've dated women before and things like that too. And like, I'm very whoa, open. Whoa. Talk about, wait, wait, I'm the one who gets accused of being biphobic all the time. Listen to you. You're bisexual and you're worried that your now newly out bisexual boyfriend isn't really bisexual or might be a, a secret faggot. And you're worried about him betraying you in this way. I guess, Girlfriend, I guess. you need to We're wrestle with your internalized biphobia there. <laughs> Maybe. See, I think... Maybe that's true. Uh, you know, I, I think it's really hard, and you talk to bi guys who are closeted or only recently came out to the women in their lives, it's really hard for a lot of bi guys who are heteroromantic to be out about their bisexuality, about their cockhoundery, because... Mm-hmm. Because a lot of women, straight women, will not date. And even bi women will not date bi guys because they think they're lying because of the misimpression that gay guys have created or the PR nightmare that gay guys have created for a lot of bi guys, right? <laughs> Which is reinforced <laughs> by bi guys who then aren't out. You know, bi guys who are heteromantic or bi guys who are, you know, homoromantic or whatever, who are not out, allow those gay guys who lie about being bi for five minutes and they're coming out process to really – paint the public portrait of what a bi guy is, which is somebody on their way to being gay. Yeah, that's true. And if more guys no, like your right. guy were out about being bi, that wouldn't be the impression that the majority of people had about bi guys. But because a lot of women right. won't date bi guys, there's a huge disincentive to being out about it, but particularly for bi men who are heteromantic, but bisexual. 
They want relationships with women, but women won't have relationships with them. If they're out about being bi, so they're not out about being bi. But nobody can live all their life in the closet and eventually come out. Hopefully, you know. That's a really good way of putting it. And that's how I want to look at it. And you should also look at this as Yahtzee and you win. (laughs) Because what you want is something you are likelier to get from a bi guy because what you want, you can also offer him. I'd like a little dick on the side every once in a while, and I bet you would too. So let's have a conversation about that. Yeah, and not all bi people true. need to be in open relationships. Not all bi people are incapable of honoring a monogamous commitment. Waka waka waka. I don't think many people are able to honor a monogamous commitment for five decades. But whatever, you have to say that bisexuals, like anybody else, is capable of honoring a monogamous commitment. But I think you know, from talking to my bi friends, they prefer to be in a relationship that allows for same sex, whatever, or opposite sex, whatever, every once in a while. Right. I mean, yeah, that would be the ideal, I guess. I don't know why you're viewing this revelation so negatively, unless you went out of this relationship and you want to blow this, the lies he told you for five years up into a causes belli that justifies dumping him. But if what you want is a long-term relationship with someone who eats your pussy, who you like, who you love, who allows you to have some dick on the side because you're doing the same for him. Awesome sauce. Awesome stuff. Okay. That's a better way of looking at it. I just don't want to be sad and I needed like, well, then don't, I don't know. Don't have a relationship ever <laughs> <laughs> because relationships are sad generating engines. Even if you're together forever, even if you never break up, there will be periods of intense sadness because pe- That's true. people hurt each other. You just have to weigh yeah, whether, which, which brand of sadness you prefer. The sadness of being alone, which for many people isn't a sadness at all. There are lots of happily content people out there mm-hmm. who are alone and prefer to be alone or uh, not attached in any way romantically to anyone. And God bless them. But a lot of people, you know, to be alone is very sad. If you're one of those people, being alone is very sad. You have to weigh the sadness that this dude is going to inflict on you over the course of your relationship against the sadness of being alone. And if sadness is something you can't handle, sadness inflicted upon you by a romantic partner, don't have a romantic partner. Because there is no, no you're totally right. sadness-free romance. You're totally right. I appreciate your opinion. I think the reason... We're, my boyfriend and I are very, very close. I think that's the reason I was so hurt. Like, we rode our bikes across the country together. We've moved to California together. Like, we're very much best friends. So I just felt lonely. Give him a break. The- Give him a break. This is a really hard thing. A really hard thing for a lot of guys who are bi, who are with women to open up about. And I think people should be out and I think they should lay their kink cards on the table. I don't think bisexuality is a kink, but people should be able to be open with each other. People should reveal themselves to someone before they make a serious commitment, whether it's marriage or not, or living together or whatever. But there's a lot of people Mm -hmm. out there who just are so tormented by the specter and the not irrational fear of rejection that they kick the can down the road and they kick it down the road and they feel terrible about it. And then when they finally open up and tell the truth, which is what you say you wanted all along, then they're faulted for not telling the truth sooner. Happy to have the truth, but fuck you for not telling me three years ago, four years ago. Yeah, I'm not really being like that. Like, I'm being really crazy. I think supportive and part of it. I just, like, feel this, like, nagging, and I just have a lot of fear. And I appreciate this has been very helpful, well, the, conversation. And the only way for him, and I'll, I'll leave you with this, the only way for him to prove to you that his bisexual identity is not a lie, that he's not a gay dude telling you he's bi on the way to running off to Gay Island, is <laughs> for him not to do that. 
for that not to happen. Right. And the only way for you to see that that's not going to happen is for you to hang around. Yeah. Go have the happy conversation with him about dicks. You want other <laughs> dick every once in a while, and so does he, and you should talk about how that might work, whether that's three ways with the occasional guest star or whatever it is that allows for you both to have some other D every once in a while. This is, you've been handed a gift. Okay. Thank you. I'm going to look at it that way. You're welcome. Good luck. Hi, Dan. Uh, I am a 28-year-old cis bisexual female. Um, I am currently monogamously married uh, with no kids. I want kids, and my husband has realized he doesn't. And um, so we're doing the smart thing and uh, dissolving our marriage. Um, We came to this decision mutually and amicably mostly out of a desire to retain a strong relationship and friendship um, once we actually end the marriage, uh, you know, so that I don't resent him if we don't have kids and he doesn't resent me if we do. It's going okay so far, but our financial situation um, means that we can't move out yet. I'm a teacher. I'm looking for full-time work and um, we live in the most expensive city there is. And it's been pretty hard. We're hanging out and enjoying each other's company, but um, sometimes we're enjoying each other's company too much. And that leads to sex, which we've kind of said like, no, we're not going to do that anymore. Um, We're trying to create boundaries and, you know, make it as easy as possible. But that, amongst other things, is making it really hard. And so I guess I'm calling to ask for advice on A, how to set and maintain those boundaries without, you know, getting too upset, I guess, and hurting each other's feelings and how to stay sane while we're still living together. And also, um, once we aren't, like how to maintain that friendship that we really want to. Um, We're running the same circles. We have a really wonderful um, group of friends uh, and we will see each other through that. Um, But, you know, it's, uh, and we know it's going to take some time and and space and such. But uh, yeah, any advice that you could give would be really helpful. Uh, We're both really sad and um, just trying to make the best of a shitty situation. I'm fine with friends with benefits arrangements and I have no problem with a couple that's divorcing or divorced where the sex is great and sex is part of the friendship that they want to maintain post-divorce. Just the superstitious Catholic in me is worried about the fates who aren't uh, part of uh, Catholic dogma or tradition, but whatever, about the fates looking at what you're doing and having a laugh and getting you pregnant because you guys are divorcing. You want kids. He doesn't want kids. You're not going to be together anymore, but you're going to keep fucking because the sex is so awesome. And every birth control method on the planet has a failure rate. And I just worry if I were you, if I were you, if that was my uterus, that was my vaginal canal that all that cum was being pumped into by the man I was leaving because he didn't want to have kids. I would be worried that this would be the worst possible time for my particular preferred birth control method to fail and the fates would cackle as they engineered that failure. So my advice to you is stop fucking this guy. 
that you're divorcing because you want kids and he doesn't want kids because how catastrophic or traumatic would it be right now for you, the 28, to get pregnant by this guy that you would like to have kids with? Yeah, and how traumatic that might be for him if you were to get pregnant by him and you decided to keep the child, to have the child. Yeah, so stop fucking. That's my advice. That's the boundary I think you need to establish. Or if you're going to keep fucking, anal only with him from here on out. Hi, Dan. This is Dana from Kentucky. I was just wondering what you thought about this scenario. My husband and I have a 13-month-old child, and because I am, quote, advanced maternal age, end quote, we are already trying to have our second child. I've really been mindful of the fact that um, we need to keep our romance fresh and not just in the sense of making a baby. And so when he knew and I knew that I was ovulating this weekend, I was after listening to your podcast a lot lately, I was really trying to channel what I believe are some of the things that he feels like he lacks in our relationship. And so when I realized that he was not coming or going to come and that he needed to come because I was ovulating and we're trying to have a baby, um, I blurted out, just think of whoever you want to fantasize about. I don't care who it is. Just think about whoever you want to think about. He literally freaked out and like pulled up his pants and ran out of the room. And I'm just confused about that. And so I thought that maybe you could weigh in on what you think about that. I think you freaked him out. Beyond that, I really couldn't tell you what the fuck is going on. Maybe he was thinking about something and you saying, go ahead and think about whatever it is you need to think about freaked him out. I mean, back to that. He freaked out. The person you need to be asking about what happened in that moment is him. Maybe he's worried about how you feel about him. Maybe he's one of those guys who's just really invested in being just your husband and you being his wife and you being exclusive sexually, emotionally, also in fantasy land. There are some guys who feel that way. Maybe he worries that when you said go ahead and think about whatever you need to think about, that you were laying there thinking about not him, that you were thinking about the stuff that you needed to think about to enjoy the sex. You were just thinking about ovulating, it sounds like, and perhaps you need to reassure him on that score that you weren't thinking about Elon Musk or Tom Cruise or whoever it is the fuck that people think about or Ryan Gosling or whoever the fuck. Maybe that's what he's worried about. Or maybe he felt busted in that moment. I'm just vamping here. I don't know what the fuck is going on. There's a million different reasons, a million different Shocks that could have inspired or informed the freak out that he had. I would, if I were you, perhaps get him to listen to this show or I go off or go and ask him what the problem was. You might want to lead with an apology. When you say something during sex that causes the other person to freak out and leave the room, you open with an I'm sorry. I'm sorry I didn't mean to – certainly didn't mean to end it or – freak you out that way or, or hurt your feelings, whatever it was that I said that hurt you, please, can we unpack it so I don't hurt you in that way ever again? Because that wasn't my intent. Might want to lead with that. 
Hey, Dan. This is Carrie from Tennessee. I'm a bisexual female. I recently have engaged in a relationship with my repairman, which is like a porno. Uh-huh. Very much like a porno. <laughs> I feel like a huge hypocrite because I have asked my ex-husband to not sleep with uh, our former nanny, which he is still doing, and asked him to only have her around for an hour or so a day just because of the kid's sake and not being confused. And I've had the repairman around my house for 36 hours or so. And I don't want the kids to be confused thinking that just because there's a man sleeping in my bed means that they have a new daddy reason why he is sleeping in my house is because he fell off my ladder and he fell from three stories down onto the ground and I've been taking care of him and I just want to not feel like a hypocrite and I want to know your opinion on how I should talk to my ex-husband about it because I've been so demanding and he's been very careful with his girlfriend slash ex-nanny. I just want to know what you think about it. You're a hypocrite. But your hypocrisy is complicated by really what is a totally legit objection to the nanny or complicated feelings about your ex-husband's girlfriend being your children's former nanny because children bond with nannies. A nanny is a quasi-maternal bankshot role. And it's more loaded that your husband is going to perhaps introduce the nanny as his partner to your children at some point and potentially their future stepmother, which is another quasi-maternal role, right? Or a legitimately maternal role, step-maternal-ism. All that said, you need to go to your husband and say, we've passed the point where we should be dictating to each other or I should be dictating to you about how you conduct your private life. And if this thing with the nanny is the ex nanny is lasting, if it's reached a point where you feel it's appropriate, you both together talking about it, it's reached a point where you feel it would be appropriate for this person to be introduced or reintroduced to your children as their father's romantic partner, which is not something you do too early because, you know, when a couple splits up and there are kids involved, the last thing the kids need emotionally are a lot of new adults churning in and out of their lives that they bond with and that are disappeared when the romantic relationship ends. You introduce the kids to your new partner post-divorce or your ex introduced the kids to their new partner post-divorce after their, after you or the ex are really certain, relatively certain, as certain as a person can be, that this is a, a lasting relationship, that this isn't going to be over in eight weeks or three weeks or six months. And if it's reached that point, you need to allow it. You can't block it forever. You need to allow it. You need to say to your husband, I'm going to let go. And I'm sure your husband can appreciate. I'm sure he appreciates. He's been very good about this. I'm sure he appreciates why your feelings about that being the first person he got with or got into a relationship with after your marriage gave you feels. But it's just a fact that he's with her and your children have already bonded with her. And in a way, it's good. You should look on the bright side. That your husband is with somebody that you were comfortable enough with once upon a time to trust your children to? 
And that is something that, you know, a lot of divorced women whose ex-husbands have new partners, an advantage that they don't have. They don't get to vet the stepmom. They don't have any assurances that this new person in their children's lives who's in a maternal role is a good and trustworthy and loving person. And you obviously felt that way about her once. And you can feel that way about her again. Look on the bright side. And at the same time that you give your husband permission to roll the nanny out or the ex-nanny out as his romantic partner, you might want to add that you're fucking the repairman or that there's a man in your life who's present in your house. If you've been dictating to your husband who can and cannot be present in his house when the kids are around, I think honor, duty obligates you to disclose who's in your house when the kids are around. He has a right to that information too just as you have a right to that information from him. He has the right to that information from you and your current situation complicated by the fact that you're doing the right thing by your handyman who injured himself at your house. You're going above and beyond. Most people wouldn't take in a handyman who injured themselves at their house. That's not something we do necessarily in our culture, but you're doing it or have done it because you're fucking him too. And it's time your husband knew that. And it's time your kids, if you're sure about the handyman, you don't say how long you've been dating him, but if you're sure about him, roll him out. And if your husband's sure about the nanny or the ex-nanny, it's time for him to roll her out as well. Hello, Dan. I'm 27 years old, and uh, I have not had. I'm a homosexual male, and I have not had a long-term gay relationship for a very long time. Uh, I came out when I was very young, uh, 17 years old, and was very lucky. Have parents and friends who accept me, love me, and I have a lot of great people in my life, and for that, I'm thankful. As soon as I came out, I got into a relationship because I wanted to, and the relationship did not end well. And it was not a healthy relationship, as I have found most 17-year-old gay relationships are not. Anyway, um, I'm calling because now I am 27, so it's been a few years. We were together until I was 19, and uh, since then, I've not had a long-term relationship. And as I've gotten older... I have found that the need or my personal desire for that long-term relationship has gotten stronger. It's just not been a good time because I feel as if I haven't been able to connect to anyone who wants, who's on the same page as me, who wants that long-term relationship. Most of the guys who I've gone out on dates with either want sex, which is perfectly fine, but it's not necessarily as fulfilling as the uh, thing that I want. I'm also into, uh, on the side note, uh, BDSM, and I haven't, <laughs> and so it's kind of a dichotomy of the traditional relationship one wants based on the untraditional ways one has in the bedroom. So I'm trying to wrap my head around your non-problem because it kind of seems like a non-problem to okay. you. You're really young, Right. Uh, 27, so I don't know how that... That's pretty young. You're in your early, late, mid-20s. And you had one significant relationship that wasn't a happy one. Um, And like a lot of people in your 20s, you kind of bounced around a bit. You fucked around a bit. A little bit, but not to... I feel like, to be honest with you, since this is the 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 show of honesty, uh, (laughs) I feel like not to the extent that a lot of my friends have. But yes. And why you know, haven't you fucked around as much as your friends? And I'm not saying that there's like a degree of fucking yeah. around that we all must engage in, but what are right. they doing differently than what you're doing and why? I feel as if 
I feel as if the, um, I almost feel like, if this makes sense, I was raised in a very, I was raised in a, a household in which the people were very close together and they were married for a very long time together. Mm-hmm. Uh, Catholic like household, but, and they're still together. And I admired that to an extent that they were together and very monogamous as far as I know. I don't know, but as far as I know, and I feel as if I would like to not mimic that, but I, I feel very like my ultimate goal in life is to have someone in which I would be in a long-term relationship like that. Right. It seems to me that you're identifying sexual exclusivity with stability because in the stable relationships that you were, you know, uh, that you witnessed growing up, they, those things mm-hmm. were bundled together. And there's sure. a lot of stable relationships out there where sexual exclusivity is not necessarily part of it and they're as committed and stable as any other relationship, sometimes more stable mm-hmm. for the lack of sexual exclusivity. You know, desire for others sometimes tears people apart. Okay. And if you can stay together and act on those desires for others without having to tear your marriage apart, in some instances right. that saves a marriage. Now, I'm not, I'm not proselytizing for you to want non-monogamy instead of the monogamy you want. I would say, right. however, that you know there's a lot of people out there who are in stable, committed, sexually exclusive, monogamous relationships who met when they had a one-night stand. I hear that that is your case. Yeah, that is my case. And for all you know, that's your grandparents' case too. There was a lot of hooking right. up around, I don't know how old you are, how old your grandparents are, around World War II, around Vietnam, around Korea. There was a lot of, there's a change in sexual mores that isn't often acknowledged or recalled. Like if your grandparents were swingers, if your grandparents, you know, had a one night stand that stuck, they're not going to tell you that. They're going to tell you they met at a dance. They're not going <laughs> to tell you that they fucked immediately after that dance and right. didn't know those names. Right, right, right. So it seems to me that maybe you need to leave the house more. That's probably true. And drop your drawers every once in a while. Can I ask you, like, I, I don't mean to be rude. Like, I'm, I'm just asking. Like, Being rude around here I is feel- my job. Callers are not allowed <laughs> to be rude. That's my gig. Go ahead. I, 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 I've been told from friends of mine that my standards are maybe a little too high when one hooks up with one. Mm-hmm. I, you know how we've or you've talked about um in your podcast how females release a certain uh hormone where they attach themselves sexually when they have you know sex with another person and you know the person doesn't want to cuddle for example and they roll around and you know they yeah they i, I, I don't think I, I don't think i've talked about that but i've heard about that but i don't think I, I, i've promoted that theory but go ahead oh, okay. that you're you're girl you're girly that way a little bit i guess but I'm a I'm a very a top, so that's very interesting. Oh, you're a top. Yeah, it, yeah. Okay, and a BDSM top. <sighs> that's the other problem. Or not switchy. Problem, it's not. Other. It's not a problem. It, it, don't regard being kinky as a, a problem. More of a submissive top in that regard. <laughs> oh, this is my favorite kind. All right, listen. I know. Right. We have something in common. We have a couple things in okay. common. The, the first thing is, I my friends when I was your age would call me a prude too. And when I was younger than you, in my early 20s, I was regarded as a terrible prude. And my prudery was partly impacted by the HIV-AIDS epidemic that was killing everyone at the time. Right. A lot of my friends were dying at the time, and that made the you know cost of entry for sex much higher 
And you would look at people and think, I wonder, is he worth dying for? And that you had to factor that in then, right? Particularly before, Mm -hmm. you know, this is long enough ago that it was before we knew that uh, exactly what HIV was or how AIDS was caused. Now, the the, the thing, my problem was I couldn't mess around with somebody if I didn't, if I couldn't see myself dating that person. That didn't mean I had to be dating that person. It just means that in the bar or, you know, in Amsterdam on that street corner when I met this guy, I would have to like talk to them long enough to establish uh, this feeling that, oh, I would date him. That makes sense. If this works out, I could date this guy. And that rings very true. That's how I met everybody I've ever been with and Terry. You know, Terry and I mm. talk about how we had a sleazy one night stand and that was the beginning of our relationship. But we also had, before that one night stand, a two or three hour flirty, make outy conversation in a bar where I established, mm. yeah, I could date this guy. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you might want to, I, I want to gift this strategy to you. I'm going to give it to you. Sure. Don't, you know, Please. you don't have to get on, you don't have to get on Grinder and instantly hook up with a thousand guys until, you know, you win the well, lottery. I'm on, I am on Grinder, so. You are on Grinder. I am, but okay, it, well, it hasn't worked well. <laughs> okay, well, you don't have to remain on Grinder, or you don't have to right. function on Grinder the way most people function on Grinder, which is the instant hookup at the door. Mm-hmm. I what I'm going to give to you is you should have it in your head that you could have a one night stand, you could have sex with somebody you just met mm-hmm. after you determine through flirting, talking, yeah. having a drink together, hanging out a bit mm-hmm. that. You know, if the one night stand works, if you continue to like him, if you like how his spit tastes and his dick tastes, right. that you will see him again. Yeah. And that sets the bar just a little bit higher. <laughs> and that will exclude <laughs> from your hookup pool and your dating pool and your, you know, potential future husband pool guys who just want right. as much dick as possible as quickly as possible. And some of those guys are my friends, I'm not shitting on you guys, right? But yeah. those aren't the guys it sounds like you're interested in. And you just don't yeah. want to be another dick on the dick assembly line the grinder has built for us. I also kind of like fear that like those two thoughts, for example, if like you, um, for someone who would desire ultimately a monogamous, you know, fine, you know, relationship, and then someone who enjoys BDSM kinky sex, if you will, that those two thoughts are not conducive to each other. My honest opinion? Mm-hmm. They're not. In okay. practice. Right. Most people who are kinky are not monogamous. And there's a certain bowling league right. aspect to kink where this is something, you know, that you enjoy with friends. That said, I have met monogamous kinky couples. They're mm-hmm. out there. They're going to call in freaking out and angry at me for what I just said. So we'll hear from them next week, no. probably in the comments <laughs> at the end of the show. But you will meet lots of people who, you know, you go to IML. Terry and I go to IML. We're a married couple at IML. We meet lots of other married couples at IML who mm-hmm. are committed to each other. They're married. Some of, a lot of them, like us, have kids. That'll blow your mind. And at IML, <laughs> they tie up other people or they get tied up by other people or they play around a little bit. Mm-hmm. And maybe they reserve you know, full-on vanilla sexual intercourse for each other, but like kink play they can do with other people by mutual agreement. And it's a different kind of sex that sort of exists in parallel to their committed partner sex. That's true. Yeah, that makes sense. So I would advise you to do two things. Borrow my strategy of no hooking up with guys I wouldn't see myself going to dinner with. Right. And yeah. And lead with your kink. 
Meet other Kate, geeky guys. Get on Recon. Are you on Recon? Yeah, but I'm afraid to upload pictures. <laughs> but yes, I am on Recon. Get on Recon. Lead with your kink. Date vanilla guys you meet through vanilla channels. Date kinky guys or hang out with them or play with them that you meet through kink channels. And you never know. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm so sick of saying this, and I'm sure people are sick of hearing it. Two types of people you meet at kink parties, kink events. The kinky person who's been tying themselves up since age 12 or 13 and jacking off about kink all their life or uh, you know, masturbating about it all their lives. Mm-hmm. And you meet the people who fell in love with those people. So you could meet a vanilla guy who's like, what? S&M, BDSM, I don't know, I don't know. But he's in love with you and he'll go there and then he'll begin to like it. And then you guys will wind up at IML together 10 years later tying people up. Well, that would be nice. Or you may luck out. You, you, you may go to a kink play party. You may meet somebody through a, a kink channel, Fat Life Recon, a, a, a gay kink party, who you click with. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of married kinksters out there. I was just at a wedding for two guys who are kinky, who are now married kinky gay guys, who met through kink channels. So don't tell yourself that anybody you meet through Recon or at a kink party isn't someone that you right. can wind up with for the rest of your life or married to or in a committed relationship with. Well, that's good to hear. Get out there. Okay. Be safe. Thank you very much, Dan. Thank you for calling me. That was very kind of you. You're welcome. Bye. Hi, Dan. Uh, my name is Jennifer, and I am lesbian from the Midwest. I was recently married a couple weeks ago, and uh, much of my conservative family simply ignored the wedding invitations that they were sent. Uh, my partner and I have been together, my wife, my wife and I have been together now for uh, over three years. And um, they know her. They've met her. Uh, she has come to family events. She's never been acknowledged as my girlfriend or fiance or wife, but they all know her and are kind to both of us, um, I guess maybe from an outside perspective. Uh, but the fact that they ignored my wedding invitations um, pretty kind of upset me. Uh, so I think we are trying to decide whether or not we will attend any family events this year. Do we tough it out, even though it's a pretty crappy thing to just ignore somebody's wedding invitations and show up and show that no matter if they ignore us, we're still going to be there? Or do we decide that that was pretty crappy and we're just not going to go and we're not going to, you know, force ourselves to be around people like that? I guess that's my question. I'm I'm a little torn on how to react to people and kind of adds complications to the matter that uh, my brother is uh, getting married here in a couple of months and and they all ask him about their wedding and and about you know if they're excited and throwing them bridal showers and and things like that but ignore mine if your family is going to treat you so cruelly i don't think you're obligated to turn up in person for some face-to-face shit also if they're not going to honor your milestones i feel it's completely justified to ignore or not honor their milestones In a way, you need to think of your family as not your family anymore, right? That's kind of an unforgivable move on their part, in my opinion. They didn't come to your wedding. They didn't acknowledge your wedding. They're not your family. Family comes to your wedding. Family celebrates this milestone with you. Your family has communicated to you that they don't regard themselves and you shouldn't regard them as family. You are released from these obligations, your brother's upcoming wedding. Did your brother come to your wedding? I would start with that question. Did your brother send you an invitation to his wedding? Did that invitation 
include by name your spouse. If your brother invited you and you alone to his wedding, you absolutely and positively should not go. Your wife is your family now. Those people, not necessarily your family anymore. The only exception that I would make, are there relatives in your family, young relatives, nieces, nephews, cousins, that would benefit from having their queer aunt around every once in a while? Because the existence of that queer aunt lets them know, if they are queer themselves, that there's a life for them out there. That there's love for them out there, even if they're not finding it within their own biological family. You could be that example by showing up. I would, that would be the only thing that would get me to show up at that wedding. If I knew I had a little dyke cousin, if I knew I had a little faggot nephew who was trapped for now with these shitty people, I would show up. I wouldn't run up to that kid at the reception and say, queer like me. I wouldn't put that kid on the spot. I would show up so that kid could see the queer relatives, know that they had queer relatives, know that if at 15 or 16 it was so bad they needed to get away, that they had a place to get to, that they had someone who could love them and take them in. But if you don't think you have any queer relatives who need that beacon in their lives, need that example in their lives, need that physical manifestation of their queer relatives at a family event to give them hope, then don't go. Fuck the rest of these people. Fuck them. Not your family. Not your logical family, even if they are your biological family. Shout out to Armistead Maupin there who came up with that. Go out into the world and find your logical family. Sometimes your biological family is a part of your logical family. But there are times when that ain't so. And you cut the biologicals out who are not a part of your logical family. And these people who so disrespected you and your spouse, not part of your logical family, not anymore. Circling back to your brother's wedding and what you do about it, you can ignore the invitation if indeed you received an invitation. You can just be silent as they were silent or – and I think this might be the better course. You can write your brother a letter explaining why you are not coming to the wedding and let him soak in that. We're going to take a quick break from your calls. We'll get back to them in a second because I want to have a short conversation with Jonathan Eig. He's the author of the terrific book, The Birth of the Pill, How Four Crusaders Reinvented Sex and Launched a Revolution, just now out in paperback from Norton. Jonathan is a former reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Hey, Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. I just finished the book and it is fucking fascinating. And I'm surprised (laughs) that being me, that I was so unfamiliar with the story of the birth of the pill. I had just assumed that this was something science and medicine was working on for a long time, dutifully enough. And there it was. Somebody finally, they finally figured out and brought us this thing that we always needed. But these were really four renegades working off the sort of scientific and medical grid who brought us the pill. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, that's, you know, I always assume the same thing, that big science must have created this. But then it occurred to me one day that why would big science do that? Why would they give something that made sex easier and made sex more fun and gave women a shot at equality? You know, in the 1950s, there was no way that men were going to agree to something like that. So it had to be these outsiders, and and what they were doing was illegal in the 1950s. Birth control was illegal um, in the federal law, and uh, 30 different states had laws against even giving out information about birth control. So you had to have a bunch of renegades come up with the plan and execute it, 
And to execute it, they really had to break the law and, and, and do it all on the down low, like, you know, guerrilla warriors. And we know by name one of these renegades. Of course, I was familiar with Margaret Sanger, who's the founder of Planned Parenthood. It was fascinating to read that she kind of launched this of her own initiative and her own accord, that she pushed this after she'd had kind of a falling out with Planned Parenthood. Yeah, Planned Parenthood was afraid of taking of getting involved in the pill at first because um, it was you know it was illegal and and they didn't know what kind of side effects it might have and if it if it did harm women uh, they didn't want to have anything to do with it. Okay, and, we, and we, need, was, we need a little we need a needle scratch there. There was a time when Planned Parenthood wouldn't <laughs> touch contraception. That was not what they did. Well, they they did other contraceptive uh, forms, but they were afraid of this new hormonal form of birth control because it was completely unknown. We didn't really understand how it worked or if it would work or if it would have disastrous side effects. So they were they were cautious and uh, keeping their distance at first. Now, Margaret Sanger was really motivated by what she witnessed. And, and so were the other three renegades involved who we'll get to in a second. And, and what is it, the social conditions, the plight of women that Margaret Sanger and the others who were motivated to do something about birth control, about a, a reliable and easy to self-administer form of birth control. What were the social conditions that they were witnessing that so appalled them? Well, first of all, women were dying uh, from having too many children, their bodies being worn out from having botched abortions, um, but also just the fact that they really couldn't have sex without this, this you know, fear of getting pregnant. Um, you know, that's why women often were getting married um, at age 18 or 19 because they were in love and they, they wanted to have sex and they were terribly afraid that if they, if they had sex, they would, they would get pregnant and they would be, you know, expelled from their communities. They would be considered, um, you know, immoral and, um, you know, to get pregnant before you were married was, was, was very dangerous back in those days. So Sanger saw just how women were crippled by this inability to control their own bodies. And these huge families where people couldn't take care of their children and women who were yeah, def- right. defenseless against husbands who may be abusive or drunk or useless, who are constantly knocking them up because people have to remember that at that time, a, a man could legally rape his wife. That's, a, that's right. Uh, it wasn't even grounds for divorce if your husband raped you back in the 50s, so um, in, well into the, into the 60s as well. So Sanger saw her own mother, uh, she was one of 11 children, she, she saw her own mother die from just uh, being worn out, and so many women were coming to her and saying that they didn't know what to do. They, you know, one doctor told, um, told the patient she should, the only way to avoid getting pregnant was to sleep on the roof because there's no other way to avoid her husband. And the husband didn't care, you know, the difference between having 10 children and 11 children wasn't that great to the man. Uh, he didn't have to do any of the work. He didn't have to bear the, the child. So, the, you know, there was this incredible double standard. Now, run us through the other three renegades involved with Sanger. So, so Sanger, has, you know, has been searching for this. She calls it a miracle tablet, you know, a pill that would turn on and off the woman's reproductive system for, for 35 years. And by the time she's in her 70s, she figures it's never going to happen. But she meets this scientist named Gregory Pincus, who's been um, let go from Harvard. He's too radical for Harvard. He's working on in vitro fertilization. He's Jewish. It's, you know, he just he can't catch a break there. And uh, he meets Sanger and says, "Yeah, I could do that. I know exactly how to make a birth control pill. And if if you can get me a little money, I'll be happy to do it for you." And he he doesn't care about the risks because he has nothing to lose. Um, and he brings on a Catholic gynecologist, uh, which is brilliant in so many ways. Um, because this Catholic gynecologist kind of becomes the face of these studies and, and can reach out to the community and say he believes that the Catholic Church is wrong 
about um, its ban on, on birth control, wrong on abortion, that women have a right to control their own bodies, sex is good for something other than having babies, that couples should be allowed to enjoy it without this fear. So he becomes um, a, a really key part of these, of these uh, tests. And then, of course, um, there's no way to pay for all this because no government grant is going to be made. Um, no university is going to support it. They can't even find a drug company that's willing to, to work on it at first. So Catherine McCormick was um, married to one of the wealthiest men in the world. He also happened to be mentally ill, and she had spent most of her adult life caring for for her husband and, and looking for a cure for schizophrenia. Um, Catherine McCormick also happened to be a scientist, one of the first women to graduate from MIT. Um, but she, when her husband died and left her this enormous fortune, she decided to devote all of it to birth control research. Fascinating. There's so much fascinating detail in this book, including this thing that made me jump out of bed and read it aloud to my husband, Terry, because we care very passionately about birth control as gay men, which is weird. But <laughs> the fact that the, the, the initial studies where they're studying how to induce infertility, they presented to authorities or they let people assume that they were trying to cure people who were infertile, not induce infertility. That initially these studies were presented as we are, we're researching, we're looking into how to help women who can't have babies, not how to help women not have babies. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating and it's hard to wrap your head around it. But the very first women in this country to get the hormonal birth control are women who are desperately trying to get pregnant. So go figure that one. Um, then they tried it in insane asylums because, you know, you could pretty much do whatever you wanted in, in insane asylums back in the 1950s. Yeah. And then they tested it in the slums of Puerto Rico because uh, women down there, um, even though they were Catholic, they had seven children on average and they were desperate for anything that might help. The book reads like a thriller. It's really fascinating. And I encourage everyone to pick it up. Um, and uh, we're not going to give away how they get there and how they invent the pill and, and the breakthrough and the success. There's one thing I, I want to draw you out on, though, because, you know, Sanger is a hugely controversial figure on the right. She's accused of all manner of crime. She's accused of wanting to exterminate African-Americans, accused of being a eugenicist. You talk about that in the book. Can you talk about that aspect of Sanger's history? Yeah, most of what you hear from the right and most of what much of what you read on on the web is bullshit when it comes to Sanger. A lot of it is completely fabricated, but most of it is is just misunderstood. Um, you know, she did make uh, deals with the eugenicists because they overlapped in their goals. But at the same time, she was very progressive in a lot of ways when it came to race. She was opening clinics in poor communities. Um, she had clinics in in Harlem. She had W. E. B. Du Bois on her on her board of directors. She was, um, but the right wing very, says that she opened a clinic in Harlem because she wanted to kill all the black people. Kill no, all it's the not black true. Babies. It's simply not true. She wanted people to be able to have the children that, that they wanted to have. She wanted people to get pregnant when they wanted to get pregnant and help people who wanted to avoid pregnancy avoid it. It was that simple. And, and that was something that was true in every community for every you know, race and, uh, and ethnicity. Can you place eugenics in context? The, the, there's nowadays, you, you, it sounds like the way the right talks about her, that Sanger was the only person in the history of humanity who bought off on eugenics. And that's not true. Winston Churchill was a supporter yeah. of eugenics. It was a very popular movement. It was very trendy in the 30s. There were classes taught on it at major universities. And it was seen as uh, this interesting sort of um, scientific experiment. Can we use um, genetics to improve the quality of life, to improve society? Can we 
and, and you know, and so, some people went further. Some people said, you know, we should we should be discouraging um, people who are illiterate. We should be discouraging people who are sick from having children, and we should be encouraging only the the wealthy and the educated to have more kids. Um, and that was kind of you know where it started to go uh, too far. But for a lot of people, it was just an interesting question, you know, and and it's an extension of what we still say today, and that is, you know, children should be wanted. And people who don't want children should have the tools available to them to avoid having children. Do people today take the pill for granted? Oh, absolutely. I think people of, you know, my generation and certainly even younger, um, they assume that it's always been there. And they assume that, that women have always had this ability to control their own bodies. And it just isn't so. And, you know, we see people today trying to take their rights away, trying to make birth control less accessible. And they forget just how much good this has done um, for for. for the health of women, for the health of children, for the economy, for democracy. I mean, giving women this shot at equality um, has has just had you know ripple effects that are. I, I think you, you could make a case it's the most important invention of the 20th century. And there are people still alive today who can remember what it was like when we didn't have it. The book is "The Birth of the Pill: How Four Crusaders Reinvented Sex and Launched a Revolution" by Jonathan Eig. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. Pick up the book and read it. It is fascinating. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you. Hi, Dan. I am calling from northern Indiana. I am a 26-year-old heterosexual male. My question is namely about dating in relation to to my family. So me and my best friend since high school, uh, we've grown up together, and um, both of us have, have changed quite a bit over time. But as we've grown older, we've realized that we really would like to date each other. The problem is, I think my parents are not huge fans of her. She grew up in a different socioeconomic status than I did. They probably won't like the fact that she has tattoos, that she doesn't have a college degree. Um, there's, there's lots of differences in the way we were brought up. So in your experience, what normally happens in these kinds of relationships? How can I address my parents on this? What normally happens in instances like this where the parents disapprove of their child's choice of romantic partner is that parents get the fuck over it or they don't. That's what normally happens, basically one or the other. The odds of them getting over it are increased exponentially by your firmness with them. Your parents may believe that if they withhold their approval, if they act really shitty, if they treat your romantic partner badly, that you will reconsider and you'll get rid of that person or it'll put such strain on your relationship that it'll separate you two. It'll, it'll create a fissure. It'll drive you apart. And the only thing that gets parents who are employing that strategy to knock it off is the slow and dawning realization that it's futile, that it's not getting them anywhere, that it's destroying not their son's relationship with his partner but their relationship with their son and his partner. So it's a waiting game. It's a wearing them down game. It's a war of emotional blackmail attrition. All that said, so you got to stick up for your girlfriend. If you're going to date her, you need to be the first line of defense. Don't expect her to face down or stare down your parents or argue with your parents. That's your job to come to her defense. Without her in the room, go to your parents, argue her case, tell your parents they're being assholes. But asterisk, here's the caveat. You do need to pay attention to what your friends, family, parents think of your romantic partner. Sometimes we are with toxic people and we are so wrapped up 
in them, so invested in the relationship, so under their spell or control that we can't see it and we need that outside perspective. If your parents object to this person, this woman, because of her socioeconomic class or her background or the struggles she's faced, no fault of her own, that have no impact whatsoever on her character, her quality as a person, fuck your parents. But if they object to her because she's awful or shitty or obnoxious or rude or terrible to you, don't round that up to a socioeconomic class thing if it ain't that. Listen to what your parents have to say. Listen to what they're actually saying and don't allow yourself or your girlfriend to hide behind, oh, it's just because I have tattoos. If what your parents are saying is she's rude, she's awful, we don't like the way she treats you, blah, 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 and all you're hearing is tattoos, 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 that's your problem. And we need that outside check sometimes. Sometimes cliches are true. Love is blind. And we rely at those times when love blinds us on our friends and our family, and our, even our parents, to open our eyes for us. So hear your parents out. If they're full of shit, push back and push back hard in a loving way. But if they're right, if what your parents are saying is very similar to what your friends are saying when your friends get honest with you, don't write it off. My wife and I have been together for about 10 years. Two years ago, she caught me jerking off to her friend after the fact. I did it on a computer and she caught the picture up uh, afterwards and deduced what I had been doing. And uh, periodically over the last two, two and a half years since this has happened, she has refused to let it go. She will, you know, most of the time everything will be fine. And then she will just flip shit and talk about how hurt she is and how, you know, this is complete bullshit and what a terrible person I am and how dare I do this to her, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's kind of fucked up because we kind of have a monogamous relationship. She has told me about men that she's wanted to sleep with. I sometimes react with a little bit of jealousy. Sometimes I think it's kind of hot and sexy when we're having sex. One of our go-to fantasies is that she's getting double teamed or gang banged. So like, you know, we talk about openly uh, in fantasy and in real life men that she wants to have sex with. She will not let this thing go that I, find her friend somewhat sexually attractive. This friend lives in another country. We haven't seen her in years. We haven't talked to her in years. They were drifting apart even before this whole thing happened. And she just refuses to put this down and let it go. And I'm at my wit's end. I've tried everything, talking to her, not engaging her, yelling back at her. We've gone to therapy. We've talked about this and a whole host of other issues that we've had. I've tried talking about how human beings are built for variety, how it's unfair. I've pointed out that it's unfair for her to get angry at me when she's already told me about a bunch of other men that she's wanted to have sex with. And there's even an episode where for about a year, she could not get over the guy that she worked with and just went back and forth. And it got really old, really fast about whether she wanted to sleep with him or whether she had feelings for him and all of it ever. And I just sat there and I listened to it and I supported her and I tried to get her through it as best I could. This thing, she refuses to let go. I don't know what to do anymore. If you have any advice, uh, please let me know. We've been together for almost 10 years, no children. I have kind of a feeling you're going to tell me DTMFA, but in case you have anything else in your bag of tricks, I would love some advice. Modern Love is one of my favorite columns in the New York Times. Runs in Sunday, Sunday style section. Uh, 
terrific stuff about marriage, about relationships, about love for parents, love for children, about dating, about love for doormans recently. That was kind of an interesting one. Doormans in New York and their role in the lives of single women in New York. And there was a column in Modern Love by a writer named Amy Sutherland in 2006 titled What Shamu Taught Me About a Happy Marriage. You might want to Google it. This woman whose husband annoyed the fuck out of her pretty regularly was while her husband was annoying the fuck out of her working on a book about wild animal trainers and how people train hyenas to dance and seals to balance balls on their noses and birds to do particular kinds of tricks. And in the course of working on this, she had an epiphany about her own husband and her own marriage and how to train her husband to be less fucking annoying she writes about going to SeaWorld in San Diego, quote, where a dolphin trainer introduced me to least reinforcing syndrome, LRS. When a dolphin does something wrong, the trainer doesn't respond in any way. He stands still for a few beats, careful not to look at the dolphin, and then returns to work. The idea is that any response, positive or negative, fuels a behavior. If a behavior provokes no response, it typically dies away. In the margins of my notes, I wrote, try on Scott, Scott being her husband. Perhaps since you've tried screaming and yelling and arguing and going to counseling and pointing out her really appalling hypocrisy on this, you might try not responding in any way. You might try what Amy Sutherland tried successfully on her husband, which is this SeaWorld. And yes, SeaWorld is a terrible place and they should let all those blackfish go. But you might want to try what Amy Sutherland learned at SeaWorld on your awful spouse which is when she has her little meltdown, little attention-seeking meltdowns about this other woman that you jacked off to, which is absolutely, positively your right, no response, nothing. Not screaming, yelling, not hand-holding, not rushing to her side, no negative attention-seeking, being rewarded, nothing. Stare at her blankly and see if that doesn't do the trick. If that doesn't do the trick... I wouldn't put up with this shit for much longer, particularly as it comes bundled together with such appalling hypocrisy. I would, if this last effort doesn't work, I would contemplate DTMFAing, dumping the motherfucker already, or the hypocritical motherfucker in this case. You should say that to her. This obsession of yours with this one fucking orgasm is going to end our relationship. I am reaching a point where I'm contemplating leaving you, not for that other woman, leaving you because you're so fucking psychotic about that one masturbatory episode and such a fucking hypocrite. That's where I might go after trying Amy Sutherland's blank technique, techniques that she learned at SeaWorld and applied successfully according to this modern love column that she wrote about it to her husband, Scott, who wherever he is today is a much less annoying husband than he used to be. Thanks to these animal training techniques. Maybe they'll help you too. Hi, Dan. I wanted to comment on your brief mention on episode 472 about the Mormon church's new policy that children of same-sex couples can't get baptized until they're 18. I'm a 25-year-old straight female living in Salt Lake City. I was raised Mormon, but left when I was 21. And I agree with you. I wish no child could join a religion until they were 18, but this policy is actually much more insidious than that. I'm sure there aren't a lot of same-sex couples who randomly want their kid to be baptized Mormon, 
but there are a lot of divorced couples with kids where one parent is gay and the other is still a devout member of the Mormon church. And these families have already had to work really, really hard to not let the church be a divisive issue between each other and their kids. And this policy is only working to drive another wedge between families who have enough obstacles to deal with. And more importantly, few kids are still being raised in the Mormon church, which has an all-consuming social structure. They're going to be systemically ostracized and told they're not good enough throughout their entire childhoods and adolescences, just like their parents were. And then they have to face an impossible choice at age 18 between the gay parent they love and the church they were raised in. And the church is really good at indoctrination, and they make leaving a painful, emotionally traumatic experience. This policy has basically taken the shitty way to treat gay people and extended it to innocent kids. I wish it was as whimsical as children just not being baptized, but it has far-reaching effects that will destroy already struggling families and makes children's lives very difficult for no good reason. So I do wish you treated it with a little more gravitas. Hey, Dan and the Tech Savvy App Rescues. About the guy whose girlfriend wants to spend every minute with him, I completely agree with what you said about absence making the heart grow fonder. My boyfriend and I moved an hour and a half away from each other for work reasons, and it was the best thing that ever happened to our relationship. We went from having petty arguments every day to now five days a week focusing on our careers, friendships, and healthy lives, and one or two days a week fucking like idiots and completely loving our time together. She needs to get a job, focus on finding her own friends without her boyfriend dragging her into social life, and if possible, move into her own place. Although she did move from Cali to be with you, if she's not willing to put on her big girl panties and respect yours and her own lives as individuals, DTMFA. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to episode 472 with the guy who wasn't sure if he should let his friend know his girlfriend was on a dating app. Uh, Me and my boyfriend are in an open relationship. We have been for a long time. We both go on Tinder from time to time, and we're very communicative about it. And both of us have had... Uh, friends and family members found the our other person on Tinder and they always let us know that oh hey like I found like you know so and so on Tinder uh that's a dating app and it's always kind of funny like we're not shy about it and we always explain oh yeah like we're in an open relationship but thanks for letting us know and usually the other person just ends up feeling awkward but it's always nice like it's always Really nice to know that, like, our friends and our family have our backs and are watching out for us. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Jonathan Eig on Twitter at Jonathan Eig. Eig is spelled E-I-G. And speaking of Twitter, Samantha Lockman tweets, just called in a question to at fake Dan Savage's Savage Lovecast, and it was one of the most stressful, exhilarating things ever. Ah! Just wait till we answer your question. Then you'll know stress. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for